We've all seen the incredible horse and rider combinations as the backbone of our sport. But what about everything else that makes the equestrian world tick? From the everyday grind to the world-class professional, join the Equestrian Podcast as we talk about every equestrian discipline in a way that hasn't been done before. Now here's your host, rider, trainer, and influencer behind my equestrian style, Bethany Lee. Hey guys, welcome to the Equestrian Podcast. I'm your host, Bethany Lee, and this is episode 29. Our guest today is way too humble to say all these things for herself, so I'll go ahead and brag on her for a minute. She turned pro at the young age of 20. She has tons of wins, including at Devon, Harrisburg, the Hamptons, Capital Challenge, Washington, so much more, and she is currently ranked 234 in the Longines rankings, as well as ranked 25 in the U25. She has Olympic level aspirations, so here to talk about her life and how she got to where she is today, here is Kelly Cruciati. Hi, Kelly. Hi. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. I know we're starting a little bit later, but you were just doing a course walk. So <laughs> thank you for taking the time. Um, you are at Thermal right now, correct? Uh, yep. I appreciate you being so flexible. Yep. We're here at um, Thermal Show Park for the World Cup qualifier this week. Um, today's the first day of competition. We have the $40,000 speed class first here. So I figured I'd get the walk done. I could do this in between and then show after this. Amazing. I love it. Uh, very cool. Well, yeah, let's get to that in a minute, but would love to kind of hear a little bit about your story, how you started riding and um, how you got to where you are today. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I think my story is similar to many people who grow up in the horse world. My mom has been a trainer for 30, 35 years now. So I kind of grew up knowing the ins and out of the business. I've known what I've wanted to do the rest of my life since I was four years old. I grew up in the barn learning to love the horses before even I was riding. For me, the sport is, is more about the connection with the animals. And I obviously love riding and I love competing, but at the end of the day, I love riding my horses and I love what they do for me. And I think that was something that I was fortunate enough to learn at such an early age from my mom is that horsemanship is always more important than a blue ribbon. And at the end of the day, if your horse is happy and you feel like you have a great connection, there's always another horse show. So that's kind of been our philosophy growing up. And when I was little, we did the equitation. I grew up very much in the American system of riding, doing the medal, the McClay, all of those medals that I really feel like gave me a great jump start on now um, my jumper career and now the business that my mom and I run together. So that's a really unique twist that you don't see many times in the sport that not only did was she my trainer growing up, but now we also still work together. Most kids can't wait to get away from their parents. Um, <laughs> so I feel like it's something that's very unique to us and that I feel very fortunate to have. Amazing. So tell me a little bit about your career as a young rider and as a junior. Um, have you always been kind of dabbling in the hunter-jumper world? Absolutely, yes. I started through the equitation. Like I said, the hunters did a lot of that. I grew up as a, a trainer's kid, so my mom always worked very, very hard to create opportunities for me to learn on different horses, whether it was a catch ride or Maybe there was a sale horse that came in. Very rarely was there, you know, multiple horses at the disposal uh, that I owned myself. Mm -hmm. So I feel like that helped me a lot doing the hunters and the equitation because I was exposed to so many different horses, whether they had a bit of a problem, whether they were with us, like I said, to be sold. So she worked very hard to get me a lot of opportunities so I could stay in the ring because we maybe didn't have the financial 
backing to have multiple, multiple horses in the stable. So I just got all the rides that I could and she made sure that they were all, obviously they were safe, but yeah, they weren't always the easiest horses. A lot of them were junior hunters, but my main goal was always the equitation. Um, I loved it. I loved the sophistication of it. I love that you always striving to have that perfect round. So I think having done so much equitation kind of made that transition to the jumpers really seamless because for me, I just thought about it like a big equitation course. It was the same courses, but just a little bit bigger. So that's kind of my progression, I'd say, starting out in the equitation and then ending up where we are now. Got it. Are you still riding a good amount of hunters? Or are you primarily focusing on the jumpers now? Primarily, mostly we do have jumpers. Um, we have dialed back a little bit on the hunters. I do still have some derby horses that I do, that I, I do enjoy doing the hunter derbies. At the current moment, we don't have a lot of hunters. Obviously, if the opportunity ever came, uh, I do love riding the hunters. A good hunter, there's really nothing like it. Um, right. But our main focus is the jumpers. Cool. That's awesome. Tell me a little bit about the obstacles or challenges that you faced being so closely connected to the sport from such a young age as being a trainer's kid. Obviously, mm -hmm. there are some amazing aspects to it as well. But what, what were some challenges or some maybe like negative emotions you faced of being in the position you were in? Yeah, I think that's a really good question because there are a lot of kids that um, grow up, like you said, as trainers, kids. And most times um, you only see the good parts and, you know, you have all these horses to ride and it's so amazing. And it is all of those things are absolutely amazing. Mm -hmm. But it's also a, a whole new level of I find and I've I experience commitment. You know, you're not just doing this as a hobby because it's fun. You know, you're you're trying to generate business and this one day could be how I viewed it uh, when I was growing up, this could be my business one day. Right. So I had to put that level of intensity and effort into what I was doing like it was my own. So I think for some people that could mean be maybe like a little bit of a turnoff because it's a lifestyle. It's not something that you get up at, you know, 9am stroll down to the barn, stay there for a few hours and then, you know, go home and go to the movies or go to the mall. That's not what happens. You know, it's 6am you don't get done till 8 p.m. Sometimes it's long hours. It's not a not a nine to five job. And there's things that you have to sacrifice in order to do that lifestyle. And it's just a matter of every person is different. They have to decide for themselves if it's worth it to them to make those sacrifices if, or if it's, you know, it's fun and it's it's fun to go to the horse shows. But at the same time, you still want to go to school dances and all those things. So right. I think for some people that could be a bit of a challenge. And then that could create, like you said, more of a negative feeling of it. It's more of an obligation than uh, something that you really enjoy doing. And I was fortunate enough that I never was forced into it. You know, my mom said, I would love having you here. But if you said tomorrow you want to just play soccer, like I'd support you. Mm -hmm. And that was never, never even a question for me. I knew exactly what I wanted to do. And sacrificing those things was never really a big deal to me. Like I was homeschooled um, seventh grade up. I didn't go to any school dances or anything. And I really don't, I don't regret missing it because I was exposed to so many other amazing things that I would have never had the opportunity to do if I did that. So, you know, it's hindsight's 2020. Right. Um, but I think that, that maybe could be a little bit, it's everyone's decision, I think is a, is a good way to take it as every person has to decide for themselves. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. So obviously, I mean, it's so cool, your mom's uh, mentality or that she kind of didn't give you uh, any added pressure for uh, doing things one way or the other. Did you still feel like you had put a ton of pressure on yourself? For sure. I mean, I think anybody that does the sport in any capacity would be lying if they said they didn't put pressure on themselves. Like, yeah, I think it's it's obviously more added pressure when you have put so much time and so much effort into it. You sort of feel like, you know, the results have to come. And I think that can be a bit of a downfall because then you end up putting too much pressure on yourself where no person can really ride well. So, you know, my mom has always been great about, you know, there was no pressure. There was never a pressure of, you know, if you don't win this class, you're not going to eat dinner, you know, like there's <laughs> never, never anything like that. But, you know, if you're going to do something, we were always raised to do it 110% as long as you can come out and say, you know, I did my best. The cards fell where they fell. And at the end of the day, as long as you could tell yourself that you did that, they were always happy. So again, like I said, I was super fortunate to grow up with that mentality because it was never an unrealistic expectation of pressure, I guess. Right. After your junior years, what was the transition like after that point? Did you turn Mm. professional right away? Did you take some time off? What did that look like? Yeah, no, I I actually turned professional right away. And I don't think there was many changes. I mean, the only difference was that I really wasn't doing the equitation because I was too old. And I I sort of was, again, fortunate that it was a very seamless transition that I sort of had a good group of horses at the time um, that were really going well. And I could kind of just continue on the goal and the path that we had. And that made it really easy. So it, it really didn't change all that much except for I was just assuming more responsibility now because I was a part of the business instead of Mm -hmm. just kind of being there as a junior rider. Now I was, you know, doing lessons and getting people to the ring and, you know, coaching them. And uh, that aspect changed a little bit, but the showing didn't change all that much. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about taking on a training role, because obviously, I'm as I'm sure you are well aware, I think some people sometimes assume that if you are a good rider, you're also a good trainer or vice versa. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't always happen that way. No. Um, have you found that you enjoy the training aspect of your role? I do, actually. I really enjoy it. And I also feel like as a rider, you learn a lot by having to explain the things that you don't even think about. Right. So when you have to explain someone how to do something that you've done your whole life without even thinking about, it really makes you think and it makes you break it down and verbalize what you're doing. And I think in teaching, you can actually learn more about your riding. So I've taken that away that I can learn a lot from the ground and watching things. And mm-hmm. it also helps. I think any good professional would tell you a lot of us are visual learners. So maybe you're having a bit of a hard time with a young horse or, or an older horse. And you say, gosh, I feel like it's doing this. Can you maybe get on and see mm-hmm. my mom? And I do that all the time. I say, you know, I feel like this is happening. Could you sit on him and see what you're feeling? And then sometimes when I'm watching, it's totally different than what I was feeling or it's right, right. on what I was feeling. So I think a lot of times it can actually help, help um, your riding and your level of detail And I do enjoy it. I enjoy the students. I enjoy kids that are passionate, adults that are passionate about what they do. And it really, to me, doesn't really matter the level as long as you're excited and willing to learn. That's all you really need. Mm -hmm. So what does a normal day, we'll say today, for instance, what what does a day like today, you're just starting your first class at a show, what, what does that look like for you? Um, today is a little bit unusual for us because normally we have 
quite a bit uh, more horses. We just brought two because we had to fly them because they were in Kentucky. So it's mm. very light for us here, which is kind of nice. So normal day at a horse show for us is, you know, get up in the morning around six. Here I have the luxury of not having to be here so early because the class starts quite late. So mm-hmm. I went to the gym, kind of got myself organized, headed to the barn. I had ones of flat and then walk the course and then get ready to show. Typically when we have clients or kids showing, um, we always ride the horses in the morning. Every horse gets out at the horse show before mm-hmm. the clients come. It's just a, a normal thing. That's our program. They get in the ring if they need to. They have you know, The kids have a lesson before they show. Everybody's mm-hmm. ridden before they go in the ring. So that's very typical for us. And then we just go through the day. Um, we're lucky to have great staff. My godmother works with us, Kelly Clevenger. And then we have a great assistant, Megan Southam. So the four of us really work well together and we just sort of organize the day. And sometimes two of us will stay at home and ride the horses at home. And then the others will go to the horse show. Cool. Hey guys, interrupting you really quick to remind you, my favorite time of the year, Black Friday is fast approaching. Each year I come out with a free online holiday lookbook that goes over all of the big deals in the equestrian industry, as well as staying up to date on the fashion trends. So head over to myequestrianstyle.com slash lookbook to sign up for early access so that as soon as the lookbook comes out, you'll be the first to know. All right, that wasn't so bad, was it? <laughs> Let's get back to the episode. Let's talk a little bit about your riding specifically. You obviously had just finished a course walk. Tell me a little bit about your mentality during a course walk. Um, I'd say it's it's very light. I don't. I'm, I wouldn't say I'm the most intense person in the world. I probably get focused more. I go 55th, so I try not to get myself all <laughs> worked up when I'm walking the course and I have 54 to watch. I try to just stick to my plan, ride what I walk. I know this horse inside and out. I've had her for six years. So this is very, very low key for me, but I try to be smart. I try to ride smart. I'm not necessarily the world's fastest rider. I try to be very methodical and make smart decisions for my horses. And normally I can be skillful, but I'm not that person that can run at all the jumps and just get away with it. Like I have to have a plan. And I think that comes from all the equitation, you know, it has to have structure. I need to have a plan. Um, so I just try to walk my plan not let too many people influence it when you walk it and then just go out and try to execute it as best that I can. Mm -hmm. And do you usually do the walk by yourself? Are you with your mom or anyone else? Yeah, it's normally my mom and I um, normally will walk it once. And then if I feel like if it's a bigger class, a big Grand Prix or something, I'll walk it again by myself just so I can really visualize where I want everything to be, really solidify the numbers in my mind. So I'm not walking in the ring wondering, you know, what, oh, what was this line? You know, I never want to feel like, when I'm walking mm-hmm. in the ring that I'm still thinking about the course. Like I want it right. to be kind of on lockdown. So whether I need to walk around once by myself and kind of visualize how I want things to feel, I love to do that. Close your eyes. I tell my kids this before you walk in the ring, close your eyes and kind of visualize yourself riding the course and see mm-hmm. how you want it to feel, you know, what turns you want to take a little extra time at what places you feel like are going to be a bit of a struggle. So I try to do that and then, yeah, hope it goes well. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Awesome. So what are some things that you do to prepare your, um, obviously just kind of uh, talked about how you mentally prepare for a course. How are you physically preparing um, both your horse and yourself? I know you mentioned that um, with a depending on time you try to go to the gym what are some things that you do to prepare 
yeah, the gym is always something that I like to do for myself, whether it's in the morning or I have time if I want to ride in the morning and then go back. I feel like it's important because it kind of takes, it gets you away from the horse show. I think that's the main goal is that you kind of aren't just sitting around for hours and hours and hours waiting to show, because I don't think most people can't do that. There are some people that love to do it. I don't like it. Mm -hmm. Um, So for me, it's more kind of like a mental break where I can focus on myself, get my muscles warmed up. Um, But riding wise, typically the horses get ridden. We do a lot of gymnastics, a lot of pole work before I do a a bigger class or a welcome or something. Yeah. And you mentioned that the horse that you are riding today, you've owned for six years or you've ridden for six years. How, I mean, I feel like that's, that's extremely rare. One in the idea of a horse staying healthy that consistent amount of time. How do you keep her in such good fitness and health? It's a struggle, you know, like there's a reason that to be at the top level, they always say, you know, you have to have a string of horses and it's not, that's not lying because horses are horses and they do crazy things and they hurt themselves standing in their stall sometimes. So it's a constant, you know, battle of keeping them sound, keeping them fit. This particular horse, I feel like I have many crazy stories, but, um, she actually came to me uh, for a junior jumper. I bought her as a junior, but always a bit on and off again, just in the Grand Prix three years ago she was great next day she was very lame so Mm -hmm. I was like I don't know what to do so we actually ended up you know we we like to figure out what's going on so we did an MRI and she has uh 60% cartilage loss in her right front and then 40% on her left front so they were basically like you know she's a she's a brewer like that's just wow and we're like okay okay so we laid her up for a year didn't touch her and I shipped her to Florida because I was going to send her back to Europe to be a broodmare because at the time I didn't really have a other another place for her. And I said, you know, before we put her on the flight, let's just jog her. She was totally sound. Oh. I'm like, okay, that's weird. So I'm like, just put her back in the stall. Let's wait another week. Jog her again. Totally fine. Wow. So ever since then, she's been 100% sound. But yeah, it's, it's a constant battle. We never try to overuse her. She does one class of horse show. We keep her very fit, but we don't jump a lot at home. One thing that I can say about our program is horses last a really long time. And that's something I pride my, ourselves on. And you know, I think because we keep them so fit, they're so conditioned, but they're not overused. That has a lot to do with it. You know, my Grand Prix horse that I just retired was 19. I had wow. her for seven years. Uh, so my equitation horse, I still have Monterey that I won the medal final. Wow. He's perfectly sound. He does the derbies. Like, I, I think we have a great track record because... We just really focus on keeping them happy and comfortable. And there's no, there's no question. Like if my horse doesn't feel good, it doesn't matter. The horse show is not going. And I yeah. could, it doesn't matter. You know, I could be in the warm ring and I say, I've, I've done it many times. I jumped the first few jumps. I said, it doesn't feel right. I just scratch whether the next day it's totally fine. And I feel a little silly. doesn't matter to me. Like mm-hmm. it's a horse show at the end of the day, I don't have unlimited funds to replace them. So those horses to me are, are what I have and I have to be very mm-hmm. protective of them. Um, and it gets a good balance of, you know, like not being too over dramatic. You know, you can't every mm-hmm. single time something happens, we're not going, you have to be smart <laughs> about it. But at the same time, you have to listen to your horse and you ride, right. enough, you know, on a day to day basis, how they feel. Totally. Yeah, absolutely. That's a really good point. Um, so tell me a little bit about your, long-term goals and aspirations? Because, I mean, you're still very young. How old are you? Uh, 22. 
22. Awesome. So what what are kind of some things that you're looking ahead, um, hoping to get to in the next couple years or the next year? What are, what are some of your goals? I actually, it's it's funny you bring this up. I had a similar conversation with someone the other day, you know, when you grow up doing the equitation, the goals are so structured. You do the equitation, Mm -hmm. you want to qualify for the medal, the McClay, the Washington, the USA. It's very simple. You know, and you kind of have that structure of every year you do the same thing. There's not really a question. And I think that was one of the things I sort of needed to refocus um, when I turned professional was that first six months, that first year, I didn't really feel like I had a goal. You know, obviously my long-term goal is to represent the country at the Olympics and everything like that. But I felt like I needed a short-term goal. You know, what am I doing better myself to get to that long-term goal? I felt like I was missing that step. Mm-hmm. So last year, my team and I really sat down and we said, you know, this year, our goal is to qualify for the World Cup Finals. So we did all year. We planned the schedule to get to as many shows as that we could to qualify. And thankfully we did. And we were able to go to the World Cup Finals this year in Gothenburg, which is an amazing experience. Mm-hmm. Um, so that for me was something that was missing that we added. And now I feel very, very comfortable that I do have that goal. So the World Cup Finals for me again this year is very much in the front of my mind. Um, we've already done one in Langley, one in Kentucky last week, and then we're here obviously in thermal for that reason. Mm. Um, so that for me is the short term goal is to go to the world cup finals. And I felt like last time was sort of like my first med finals. You just sort of survive. Yeah. That's kind of all you have to hope for. And I, I did, I felt like I learned a lot, definitely things I can improve on and my horse can improve on, but it definitely made me more hungry to go back again. So that's totally. for me th- this year is the world cup finals. And then after that, probably making some senior teams would be great. Um, but again, I'm very goal oriented and I feel like if you're going to do one thing, you have to do it to the best of your ability. So right now, April is kind of my focus. And then mm-hmm. after that, we'll kind of reassess. Awesome. Um, tell me, what is the structure of qualifying for the World Cup finals? Is it point-based? Yeah, point-based. So there's actually 14 um, that we have here in North America, seven on the East Coast League, seven on the West Coast League. So I'm technically west coast because my address is in colorado but you can accumulate points in any league so i can go you know i did columbus which is east coast i did kentucky i can come here which is west coast and they only take your best four results so it's point based and then the top three athletes from the west coast go and then i believe they take eight from the east got it Awesome. So what would be an area in your uh, little niche within the industry that you work in that you feel like that you're particularly passionate about that the you feel like the rest of the industry doesn't really know a lot about or doesn't talk a lot about? Mm, that's a great question. Honestly, the first thing that comes to mind is uh, our faith. We're a very strong Christian-based family, and I feel like that's something that's not talked a lot about in the horse show world, mm-hmm. and nobody really knows how to approach it. Um, so actually, in Florida, we do an equestrian life group, which every Friday night we meet at, a, at someone's house. We meet at Pam and John Rush's house, which they're FBI stewards. They cook a great meal. We watch a short message, and then we just talk about it in small groups. And it actually serves two great purposes. You know, you're, you're building community with people that you maybe wouldn't have time to at the horse show. Everybody sits down, has a meal together and has a genuine conversation, whether it's faith based or otherwise. Um, so you're not just feeling like you're kind of going through the motions because the horse show world can feel very, very lonely, especially if you do it on your own. There's not a lot of good connections. Everybody's running 50 different ways. They're trying to get their stuff done. So a lot of that really uh, genuine friendship or connection 
or conversation can really get missed. Um, so I would say that's something I'm very passionate about. I try to share my my faith as much as I can, um, and I try to have it be an example of you know like doing it differently and having people wonder you know what's different. And I feel like that's that's what's different. I love that. I'm a Christian also, and I did not know about that group on Friday. So I for sure need to come to that. Yes, (laughs) you should come. It's, it's, it's awesome. And, you know, it's, it's really fun because this year we had about 50 people every Friday, which is amazing. Um, And new people too, you know, different every week there was a new person. So, you know, it's, it's just a simple invite and people really get excited about it. And I think it's, it's awesome. It's something that the horse show world could really use. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think just the overall structure of a lot of events being, you know, over the weekend and the uh, just the the structure of always being on the road. Um, I know for me, I I grew up in a Christian home and went to Christian uh, college and um, it's always been a big part of my life. And then uh, traveling full time showing is it makes it very challenging, really hard. Exactly. Absolutely. It does make it it makes it hard on a, like you said, on a Sunday to get to service or church or whatever you want to do. It makes it very challenging. So that's kind of why we try to block Friday nights. You feel like you're getting community and fellowship. And, and then if you can get to Sunday, great. And if not, you've already had it for the week, which is great. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Love that. Awesome. Well, Kelly, thank you so much for taking the time in your clearly busy schedule to chat with me. Of course. I so appreciate it. And good luck today. And I wish you all the best. Awesome. Thanks so much for having me. All right, that is all I have for you today. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you liked what you heard, please take a minute and write a review on iTunes. I would so appreciate it. It helps people like you find the podcast and it helps me get some killer guests. Thank you so much and I will talk to you next week.